Okay, we're continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel according to John. I've titled the series, The Message Became Flesh. And uh, I was thinking, uh, as I was preparing the message for this week, I watched a movie this week on Netflix called Colossal. It's listed as comedy fantasy. It's not funny, uh, but it does have fantasy. It's kind of a fable almost with Anne Hathaway. And uh, in the movie, she, is, she plays an alcoholic woman who, through the course of the movie, is kind of involved in the lives of three different men. One is a casual affair, and the other two, in different ways, are, are abusive towards her. And I think the movie raises these issues of what it is that we're looking for. What was uh, this character, what drove this character to dive into alcohol the way she did, and to uh, try to seek from these men around her these things that just didn't seem to really make things any better in her life. We often find ourselves stumbling through life with these kinds of issues, these core uh, longings that go down to the bones of who we are and seem to drive everything about our lives, sometimes in very destructive ways. And we just cannot seem to figure out how to get these things addressed. Jesus met just such a woman in the passage we're going to be looking at today. We're in John chapter 4. We'll be looking at the first 30 verses, and I've titled today's message, What Are You Looking For? Let's start with verses 1 through 6. Now, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went out again to Galilee, but he had passed through Samaria. Now he comes into a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field which Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's spring was there. So Jesus, having become weary from the journey, was sitting at the spring. It was about noon. We kind of frame this story. We're transitioning out of this initial uh, set of stories that seem to take place around Passover and uh, Jesus uh, is now, uh, he's moved uh, slightly uh, north uh, uh, to the northern areas of Judea and been baptizing. That's what we were looking at last week. And uh, John the Baptist uh, was baptizing near there. And uh, here's the interesting comment. Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, which I, I John doesn't spell it out. He doesn't elaborate further than that. But apparently, uh, Jesus knew that he was drawing the attention of the Pharisees upon himself. They had been focusing their attention on John the Baptist and uh, wanting to know just who he was and what exactly he was trying to do. And now they're noticing that Jesus is becoming more important. Just as we saw in last week's passage, Jesus is growing and becoming greater as John is diminishing and becoming less important. And this transition has brought the attention of the Pharisees, which leads Jesus to uh, go away, uh, to leave that area. And uh, probably, even though John doesn't spell it out right here, probably Jesus is uh, very aware of the timing of his ministry. 
and very aware that this uh, confrontation that's going to go throughout the whole gospel of John between Jesus and not just the Pharisees, but all of the religious leadership figures in Jewish life, uh, this is just going to get worse and worse until it will culminate in his crucifixion. And Jesus, from the very beginning, is talking repeatedly of his death by crucifixion, of being raised up for all to look upon as the serpent that uh, Moses raised up in the wilderness. So Jesus knows what's coming, but he knows also that it's not yet time to uh, accelerate or to hasten the moment of the cross. Jesus has uh, still to train his disciples, teach them, leave behind a body of instruction that will give shape to the whole of the Bible and will help them, uh, give them the right lens through which to understand all that God has revealed in Scripture thus far and how it all ties into Jesus himself. And uh, he's got a lot of work to do. As we read the Gospels, the, the, the disciples are so often clueless that clearly Jesus needed some time with them to train them uh, before uh, he went to the cross. So uh, Jesus understanding this and knowing that he has drawn the attention of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees in particular uh, often butted heads with Jesus because they saw themselves as the teachers of Israel. That's kind of the the way Jesus addresses Nicodemus. Aren't you supposed to be the teacher of Israel, Pharisee? And that was their claim to fame. The Pharisees were not politically influential. They were not wealthy. But their claim to fame and the reason they held a a huge influence and sway over the people at large is that they were considered the experts in Scripture. And they had very meticulously committed to memory the teachings of rabbis of centuries past. And they held that knowledge as a great treasure of the Jewish faith. And uh, they were looked upon as the authorities when it came to understanding even the most small details about Scripture. So it's, it's not surprising that Jesus and the Pharisees butted heads because the way Jesus understood Scripture was very, very different from the way the Pharisees had been telling everybody they should understand it. So Jesus knows it's not the moment to uh, get into this head-on confrontation with the Pharisees. And we'll see that when he, when he reaches his final week of, of ministry, right before the crucifixion, he will head off publicly with every single one of the major groups in Jewish leadership, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, anyone and everyone will try to take him on publicly in that week leading up to his crucifixion. But it's not the time for that yet. So Jesus... Uh, withdraws from northern Judea and he wants to go back to Galilee. Now if you know your map, you know that Judea's in the south, Galilee's up north, and Samaria's right smack dab in the middle. So uh, this statement here, he had to pass through Samaria. It was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. Now obviously if you wanted to get from northern Judea in the quickest route possibly into Galilee, you would have to cross through Samaria. You know, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, so you would go through Samaria. That was not the only way to get there, though. There were Jews who, because they considered the Samaritans ritually unclean and because they did not want to become contaminated in any way, uh, they would avoid Samaria completely and make an extra long journey by crossing the Jordan, going up on the other side of the Jordan, and then crossing back over into Galilee. Jesus doesn't do that. So the fact that he said he, it says he had to pass through Samaria, uh, I think indicates something other than that it was impossible for him to return to Galilee any other way. 
I think it points to uh, the Father's will. It points to uh, what Jesus knew he must do next. And Jesus knew that he had an appointment in the region of Samaria. He knew he had people to talk to in Samaria, and that was part of his ministry. And This was the moment to do this. So just as he knew it was the moment to step back from the Pharisees in Jerusalem, he knew this was the moment for him to step into Samaria. And uh, he had to do this. This was what the Father wanted him to do. He arrives into a town of Samaria called Sychar. It's near this field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. You remember when Joseph was an old, when Jacob was an old man, he called in Joseph and uh, gave to him specifically some land that belonged to him in the, in the territory of Canaan. Uh, so this is that territory, and uh, there's a spring there. Uh, most translations there have well, but the word actually used there is spring, and I think the idea is that there's some kind of deep uh, underwater source uh, for this well, but actually it's not, it's not a flowing spring above ground. It's, it's a well connecting to an underwater uh, source. But there's uh, a spring that's called Jacob's Spring or Jacob's Well. And uh, it's been attributed to have been dug by Jacob. And Jesus is weary from the journey and decides to sit down at the spring. Uh, John says that it was about the sixth hour, which in the Jewish reckoning of time, you started at sunup counting. So say 6 a.m. and you count forward, that would give us about noon. Uh, Some people suggest an alternate form of time reckoning but it the way uh, John uses the time reckoning later on in the crucifixion events uh, follows the Jewish pattern so I'm, I'm fairly certain that we're talking about noon here uh, so if that's right and if they started out at daybreak they've probably been walking about six hours when they arrive at this well and you can understand after six hours of walking that you might uh, appreciate sitting down for a moment So he sits there and takes a rest. Let's keep reading, verses 7 through 9. A Samaritan woman comes out to draw water. Jesus says to her, give me to drink. For his disciples had gone away into the town so they could buy food. So the Samaritan woman says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, are asking to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Uh, Now, of course, the construction there, a a Samaritan woman, or it could be translated a woman of Samaria or from Samaria, but Samaria, the city, was far away. There's no way she walked all the way from there to this well. Uh, So I think Samaritan, it just means to indicate that she's of this ethnicity. She is a Samaritan woman from the town of Sychar. She comes to draw water, and as she approaches, Jesus says to her, give me to drink. Now, to us today, that doesn't seem the oddest thing in the world. You're sitting there by a well. You have nothing to get water. You're thirsty. Somebody shows up. Uh, hey, would you mind giving me some, some water to drink since you've got something with you to draw it out of the well? Uh, of course, in our culture today, we, we have a certain degree of multicultural interaction and uh, an idea that men and women can talk to each other without terrible... Uh, concern uh, about that but in antiquity it was unseemly especially in Jewish thought to address a woman you did not know and had no connection to 
and if you think of it, even today in, in many uh, ministers who are involved in, in public ministry, they, they develop patterns of behavior to protect their own witness in such a way that they are never alone with a woman that is not their spouse just to protect against any kind of uh, suggestion that anything uh, inappropriate might be going on. So this already, Jesus alone with this woman, could be viewed as something that might put his own integrity at, in question and might endanger his own uh, standing in the, in the eyes of others. So for most Jews, uh, it would be you would not address a woman you did not know. In fact, there are some Jewish rabbis who suggested you just shouldn't really talk to women much at all and be distracted by them. Even there were rabbis that suggested you shouldn't talk to your wife too much. Uh, you should be more focused on the Torah and, you know, women are, are kind of a, an, a distraction from the important things. Uh, so the Jewish attitude certainly would not favor Jesus addressing her. But there's more going on than that. And I love the way John tells his stories. He does this all the time. He will begin telling a series of events. And Jesus has arrived there. He's traveling with his disciples. The woman shows up. Jesus says, give me to drink. In our mind, Jesus is there with all his disciples. And it's just kind of him addressing her. But now it's at this moment that Jesus lets us in on the situation. For the disciples had gone away into the town so they could buy food. So it's not until this moment that John tells us, oh, by the way, it was just the two of them there. And all of a sudden we reevaluate the whole scene. Uh, oh, so it was just him and her. Well, yeah, he probably shouldn't be talking to her. People might think something weird is going on here. And uh, there's one more very important layer to all of this. When the Samaritan woman responds, she's, she's shocked. How in the world is it that you, a Jew, are talking to me, asking me for a drink from a Samaritan woman? That's what's shocking to her. Now, there must be something about the way people dressed that automatically communicated whether you were a Jew or a Samaritan because she doesn't know this guy, but she knows just looking at him that he's a Jew. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman, in case you didn't notice. We are in the region of Samaria. It's, it only makes sense. How in the world is it that you're asking me to give you to drink? And John is uh, at this point kind of the master of understatement. He says to explain to his readers, and remember John is probably writing from Ephesus to a predominantly Gentile audience. He's probably writing his gospel a good decade or two after Jerusalem has been destroyed, the temple is gone, the Jewish life of the time of Jesus is gone. There are no more Sadducees or Pharisees, none of those groups are around anymore, it's, it's gone. So John doesn't bother digging into all these details when he's writing to Gentile readers. Uh, and he just kind of very casually says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But let me flesh that out a little bit for you. Give you a little bit of history. Uh, as it turns out, uh, the Samaritans as a people group date back to uh, the fall of the northern kingdom. When the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern tribes of Israel... Uh, this was 722 B.C. They instituted the most aggressive pattern of deportation used in antiquity. And it was designed to disintegrate ethnic 
identity and to kind of just shred any kind of sense of cohesion in the nation they had conquered. What did they do? Well, when they came in and they conquered, they took most of the people and deported them. And they took them all up the, the whole fertile crescent and just settled them scattered throughout all over the place so that there was not a significant enough number of Jews anywhere in their empire to band together and do anything. And they would take people from the far-flung edges of their empire that they had conquered in the opposite direction and bring them and resettle them in the land of Canaan. Which meant that already before the fall of the northern kingdoms, they had, they had imported the deities of the Sidonians uh, up north of Tyre and Sidon. They had adopted Baal and Asherah and were worshiping them alongside Yahweh. So now all of these guys come from all these other regions and they bring their gods with them. And we're told in the Bible that when they settle there, they worship their own gods and they just find a priest who can explain to them what they think they need to know about how to worship Yahweh and basically they just create this huge pantheon of gods Yahweh is one more God among many that's kind of the background of where the Samaritans come from this mix of Jew and pagan and uh, fully integrated into an, a, a group that over the centuries became this group we would call the Samaritans what happened while well, that's happening in the northern kingdom uh, in 587 BC, Babylon comes in and conquers the southern kingdom. Judah falls. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is razed to the ground. And they are taken off into exile. And uh, that's the second major deportation. There was another one 10 years earlier than that. And then 70 years after that first deportation, God allows them to return and begin to rebuild. In 536 BC, the exiles return uh, from exile in Babylon and begin to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and they are very aware when they do this that the reason God allowed the Babylonians to conquer them is that they had been unfaithful to Yahweh and they had been worshiping pagan gods and because of that God no longer protected them so when they come back to try to rebuild the temple and reestablish the worship of Yahweh the people in the north the Samaria region uh, they come and ask hey you're building a, a temple to Yahweh we worship Yahweh too let us help and the response of the returned exiles is, you guys have no part or portion in Yahweh. And they completely exclude them from the, from the rebuilding efforts because they don't want to taint what they're trying to do with this pagan worship of other gods. Of course, you can imagine that uh, the people who are already in the region, when these returned exiles show up and turn them down this way, they take great offense and from that point forward, they do everything they can to stop the work. In fact, they, are, they succeed because the regional capital for that whole region was in Samaria. And it was not a Jew, it was a Samaritan who was in charge of the whole region. So that guy maneuvers politically to get the rebuilding of the temple stopped. And it isn't until 520 B.C. that they're able to start the reconstruction again. And then later on... Uh, in 445 BC, Nehemiah comes back and he oversees the, re the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem and that also faces fierce opposition from the people in Samaria to the north. So you can see there's bad blood. Somewhere around that time, maybe around 450 BC, 
Uh, the Samaritans build a temple of their own on Mount Gerizim. And they, it's a temple to worship Yahweh. And the Samaritans over these centuries develop this pattern of their own version of the Jewish faith. And they have the books of Moses. They don't have any of the other books that we would consider part of Scripture. They don't have the prophets. They don't have the other books of the Old Testament. But they do have the books of Moses, and they've slightly modified them to uh, adjust to their own uh, perspective of things. But that's, that's all they have and all they know, and that's what their religion is based on. Uh, but... You can imagine uh, over the centuries then there's this great conflict between the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and this competing temple on Mount Gerizim that the Samaritans have built. And uh, there is a brief period in all of this when the Jews are able to uh, gain political independence for just a period of uh, about 40 years. And in that period there was a leader of the Jews named John Hyrcanus and he went and went into the region of Samaria and imposed the Jewish version of religion on the Samaritans. And he actually destroyed their temple in 129 B.C., that temple there on Mount Gerizim. Now, of course, that time of Jewish dominance was short-lived. The Romans came back in and put an end to all of that. So when we get to the first century... There are seven centuries uh, of bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans to the point that the rabbis in the Mishnah, which is the oldest grouping of rabbinic teaching within the Talmud, uh, in the Mishnah there is this statement, the daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from their cradle. Now that might seem a little crude, but what they mean to say by what the rabbi meant to say by that is, uh, in the Jewish law of purity, any time you came into contact with blood, you were ritually impure. And a woman during her period was not only herself impure, but if she sat on something, that seat became impure. If you sat on it after her, you became impure. If you touched her, you became impure. So that's the whole idea of this from the cradle. If you're a Samaritan woman, from the moment you are born, you are impure and you contaminate anybody you touch. That was the attitude towards Samaritans. So when the woman says, why is it that you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, to give you water? She knows any self-respecting Jew would know that I would be contaminating you by giving you my instrument that I used to draw the water. The minute you touched it, you would be unclean. What's going on here? Why are you asking me for water? Let's read verse 10, see what Jesus answers. Jesus answered and said to her, if you had known God's gift, and who is the one saying to you, give me to drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I don't know what she was expecting Jesus to respond to her question, but I'm sure it wasn't that. She raises the only issue she has ever experienced when she has had the misfortune of crossing paths with a Jew is this mutual hatred that goes back centuries. 
And her, her question to him is, what in the world are you doing? Don't you know we hate each other? You think I'm filthy. Why are you even talking to me? And Jesus doesn't say anything about hating her. He doesn't say anything about her being unclean. He doesn't say anything about any objections he would have to her at all. And as Jesus so often does in conversations like this, he goes from this superficial, let's duke it out about this issue, let's fight about this problem, he sidepasses this red herring, this distraction, and goes straight to the core issue that he needs to address with her. He says, if only you had known God's gift. And I think Jesus is talking about himself. The one the Father sent to bring heaven to earth, to bring the Spirit to us, the ability to be born of the Spirit, born of above. All these wonderful gifts, the promise of eternal life, this gift of God that has come to us. Jesus is talking about himself. If you had only known God's gift, and that already tells her, that God is kindly disposed toward her. God is not sent to her a uh, condemnation or a curse. God has sent to her a gift. A gift is something you give out of love. It's not merited. It's not earned. It's just an expression of good disposition toward a person. God is kindly disposed toward you and he has sent his gift. If only you knew this, that God actually loves you and that he has something to give to you. If you had any idea who is the one who has just said to you, give to me, uh, give me to drink. If you really understood what's going on here, I wouldn't be the one asking you. You would be asking me. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I've told you this about John. He likes to use words and phrases with double meanings. Living water is the way in antiquity you would have described flowing water as opposed to stagnant water. You would not describe a pond as living water, but you would describe a river as living water because it's in a constant state of renewal. It's flowing by. So there is a sense, uh, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Uh, the idea is uh, perhaps he would have given you fresh water from a flowing stream. Of course, Jesus is not just talking about fresh flowing water. He's talking about life eternal. And using this image, and it's so rich in the prophets of the Old Testament of living water as, as a source of life and blessing from God. I have a question from these first ten verses. Jesus broke all social norms and surprised the Samaritan woman, not only by talking to her, but by doing so, so with a loving invitation. How does Jesus model for us the task of sharing his message of life with the world around us?
Let's keep reading verses 11 and 12. The woman says to him, Lord, you don't even have a bucket. And the well is deep. From where have you this living water? You are not greater, are you, than our father Jacob who gave us the well. And he himself drank from it and his sons and his livestock. So the woman begins by uh, understanding this idea of living water in a very literal sense of fresh flowing water. Now, we've seen that John used the word stream to describe this well, so there must be an underwater source of some sort. So maybe she thinks he's just talking about that underwater. Now, this well uh, is still around today, and it's it's about 100 feet deep. It's a very deep well. Uh, and connects with this underwater source, uh, underground source. So maybe she thinks, okay, yeah, yeah, that's, you could technically say that this at the bottom of the well is living water, but you don't even have something to pull it out with. What, what are you doing offering me living water? I'm the one with the bucket. You don't have a bucket. This well's 100 feet deep. Where are you going to get this living water for me? And then she kind of continues to kind of pick a fight. And you have to, you have to wonder what lies behind this uh, if she's not had some unpleasant encounter with a Jew before and just feels like she has a bone to pick with him. Uh, nobody likes to be despised and looked down upon by others. She says, you're not greater, are you, than our father Jacob? Notice that pronoun, our father Jacob by that she either means me and my fellow Samaritans or more broadly me and you Jews and my fellow Samaritans but in either case she is claiming Jacob as her ancestor and father her spiritual father the same way a Jew would claim him you're not greater are you than our father Jacob and the Samaritans were very proud of their connection to Israel and they claimed to own their lineage to the sons of Joseph Ephraim and Manasseh and of all the 12 sons of Israel Joseph was his pride and joy he was the one he elevated his grandchildren through Joseph to the status of sons of his own that's why Ephraim and Manasseh each had their own territory they were technically only half a tribe each but Israel had raised them Uh, he said these are going to count as my own children Uh, So they had a proud heritage and a proud connection to the ancestor Jacob. They felt like theirs was as legitimate or more than any person from the tribe of Judah. You're not greater, are you, than our father Jacob? You know what? He actually gave me something. You Jews haven't ever given me anything but grief, but our ancestor Jacob gave me this well. It's because he dug this well that I can come here and get water. And not only I get to, but I'm connected to Jacob himself because he dug the well and he drank from it and his sons and his livestock, all of them were supplied by our great ancestor Jacob, the father of the people of Israel. Now, uh, I will say the Bible doesn't say that Jacob dug any wells, uh, but the ancient tradition attributed this well to Jacob, that he had dug it himself. Jesus doesn't appear to, appear to have any 
qualms about uh, this being Jacob's well. But here's the question. Are you claiming to be more important than our ancestor? And really, what she's, what she's kind of poking at Jesus by claiming Jacob as her own ancestor. How's Jesus going to respond? Will he uh, take the bait? I want you, as we're reading this, to observe how Jesus deals with people who are trying to pick fights with him. And think about that next time you want to post something on Facebook. Okay? Let's answer the way Jesus does. Does he tell her, you can't claim Jacob as your ancestor. Your ancestor's probably somebody from off uh, among the Medes. Somewhere way off, some pagan from somewhere. You, you're no purebred Israelite. Your version of the Jewish faith is a joke. He didn't say any of those things. What does he say? Verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever should drink from the water which I will give to him will never more thirst forever. But the water that I will give to him will become in him a spring of water leaping up into eternal life. Jesus now clarifies what he's talking about when he talks about living water. Notice what he does here. He sidesteps the theological argument altogether. And to answer her question, are you greater? And her, her question was really formulated uh, expecting a, of course not, answer. What Jew would claim to be greater than Israel himself, the father of the whole nation? The man God loved enough to enter into covenant with and promise to do great things to his descendants. Uh, who would claim, I'm bigger than that? And yet that's exactly what Jesus does. Again, every step of the way, everything Jesus says to this woman is completely unexpected. He says, well, let me tell you about this well you're so fond of. That's true. It's been around for a long time. In fact, it's, it's still there today. Uh, but everybody who drinks this water Jacob provided for you is going to thirst again. Lady, I bet you were here yesterday doing the same thing you're doing right now. And you know what? You're going to be back tomorrow. Because what Jacob gave you doesn't solve your problem. It just addresses it temporarily and you have to keep coming back and keep coming back because you will never be done with thirst. On the other hand, the water I'm talking about, anybody that drinks the water I'm talking about is never, ever going to thirst forevermore. I mean, the minute you drink it, it's done. Thirst has been eliminated. It is taken care of. And here Jesus begins to show that he's using water as a metaphor for something bigger. And thirst as a way of talking about something deeper than just thirst for water. The water that I will give to him will become in him a spring of water leaping up into eternal life. 
Jacob gave you something you had to come back to over and over and over again. I'm going to give you something, and I'm going to set it up inside of you. And it's going to be a self-renewing source that will deal with the issue forever. You will need to come nowhere else to find that need met. It will be taken care of forever. And what is this gift that I'm talking about? Life, true life, abundant life, and that life forever. A spring of water leaping up into eternal life. Verse 15, the woman says to him, Lord, give me this water so that I might not thirst and pass here to draw water. Reading this the way it's written, it's almost like reading texts sometimes. I can't tell whether she's kind of sarcastically saying, oh, well, of course, if you got that, give it. Uh, or if all of a sudden she, she catches herself and notices that Jesus is serious. That she stands before something more than just your regular self-righteous, self-important, condescending Jew. That somehow this man who at every turn has refused to fight with her and has shown her kindness and has talked about giving her eternal life might be serious. She does exactly what Jesus told her earlier she, she would be doing if she had any idea who she was talking to. You would ask him and he would give you living water. She does exactly that. Lord, give me this water so that I might not thirst and pass here to draw water. Now the fact that she talks about coming here to draw the water indicates that she's still kind of mixing it with just the physical need for water. the conversation is beginning to shift from the, the symbol of our physical thirst for water to something deeper. And she is uh, turning to Jesus now, not with, not with rejection, not uh, fighting against him, but actually asks him. And throughout this passage, she addresses him very um, courteously as Lord, and she doesn't mean that in the religious sense. She means it the way you would say, sir. Uh, but through the whole passage, through the whole conversation, she consistently addresses Jesus as Lord. I have a question from verses 11 through 15. Jesus offers to meet the Samaritan woman's need, but she initially tries to divert to a theological fight. Why do you think we so often respond to God with arguments and resistance? Let's keep reading. He tells her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said to him, I don't have a husband. Jesus says to her, rightly you say that you have no husband. For five husbands you have had, and the one you now have is not your husband. This you have said truthfully. Well, things get very personal very quickly in this conversation. 
and notice this. It's, it might seem like Jesus is changing the topic of conversation. He's talked about giving her a well of living water that springs to eternal life. And uh, then he seems to completely change the conversation and says, oh, go call your husband and come here. But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. We've been in this whole conversation circling around the idea of need, of thirst. That's something deep inside that just yearns for and longs for and calls out for and must have something. And Jesus knows the, the clearest evidence in this woman's life of her gaping need. Call your husband. And uh, the woman is uh, truthful but uh, misleading. She says, I don't have a husband. Now the word here, uh, there isn't a specific word in Greek for husband. There are two ways to say man, anthropos, and andros. Anthropos generally is used to talk about man as in a, a human being, a person in general, or even collectively of humankind, the, the race of man. Uh, and andros is most often used, when you, when you combine it with the Greek word for woman, gune, uh, generally it means husband and wife. And andros is the word you can translate either man or husband. And it's kind of, you know, call your man and come here. Uh, and the idea being, call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. I don't have an andros. Um, and she says, you know, you're absolutely right. You don't have a husband. You did have a husband before. In fact, you've had five of them in the past. You have had five men, five husbands. And there's a guy in your life now that you have, but he's not your husband. And the way that pronoun is placed in the Greek might kind of indicate he's not your husband as opposed to he's, he's somebody else's husband. So it could be that she's involved with a married man, or it means that she's involved with a man who has no interest in marriage. He says this, you have said truthfully. I look at this woman and I wonder, what drives a woman to get married five times and to finally settle for a guy who won't even get married? Now, in, in this culture, she couldn't divorce the husband was the only one who had that right. Which means that five times men have said, I will love you until I die. And five times they have either died or have reneged on that promise and said, you know what, now that I think about it, I don't want to love you anymore. Get out. I wonder what that does to a human soul that degree of rejection to the point that now she's with somebody who either can't or won't marry her.
Ouch. All of a sudden, I mean, Jesus has exposed the deepest, darkest, gaping, painful wound in this woman's life. She has been desperately seeking somebody to love her. Somebody to care. Somebody to be there for her. And I think she's probably at the point in life where she thinks that is never going to happen. I'll just settle for whatever I can get. The woman says to him, Lord, I see that you are a prophet. She understands, okay, well, this guy doesn't know me from Adam. There's no way he could know this about me unless there's something supernatural going on here. And she can tell at this point in the conversation. This isn't just some guy. God is at work in this conversation. So she says, Lord, I see that you are a prophet, a person who communicates to us the message of God. And notice how again she has one final attempt at trying to divert the conversation from this painful, personal, hurtful reality in her own life to the safer ground of let's just argue about something. Our fathers worshipped on this mount. In fact, the ruins of that temple the Samaritans had built that John Hyrcanus had torn down, they were visible from the very spot Jesus and the woman were at right then. She probably motioned over to them. Our fathers worshipped on this mount. And you all say that in Jerusalem is the place where people must, must worship. She tries to step the conversation away from this very intimate and personal reality of hers to this debate between Jews and Samaritans. Verse 21, Jesus says to her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when neither on this mount nor in Jerusalem will you all worship the Father. Notice how Jesus describes God as Father. Boy, that puts a different frame on the way we think about him, doesn't it? That if we just think about God as the big angry deity who sits up in heaven frowning down upon creation. Jesus consistently, over and over, and I've, I've said it before, it is the most often repeated theologically significant word in the Gospel of John. Father. And it's used almost in every instance, not every, but almost every instance it's used to address God as Father. First thing Jesus tells her is, you know what? We are fast approaching the moment, the day, when nobody's going to be worshiping God on this mountain and nobody's going to be worshiping God at the temple in Jerusalem. By 70 A.D., that temple will be absolutely obliterated, gone. It's, it's still gone. That, that 
place of worshiping the Father in Jerusalem, that temple the Jews were so enamored of and so happy about. It's going to be gone, and you're not going to be worshiping here in the ruins of Mount Gerizim, but you're not going to be worshiping in Jerusalem either. That's not where worship is going to be happening. And basically, Jesus is telling her, you know, both Samaritans and Jews have got it wrong. Worship is not about geography. The Father doesn't care where you happen to be when you worship Him. It's immaterial. And Samaritans and Jews are both wrong to fight about this. But He does say this about the Samaritans. You all worship what you do not know. You have a a modified version of the books of Moses. You have cut out and missed out on all the rest of the revelation of the Old Testament. And because of that, your knowledge is incomplete. And you are seeking to worship the Yahweh that the books of Moses talk about. But you don't know what you're really getting yourself into. Your knowledge is very incomplete. We, and he's talking about the Jews, we worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. And here's what Jesus is saying. God is not doing the same thing simultaneously through a hundred different sources. And he's not doing something with the Samaritans, uh, a plan of redemption and rescue that he's going to work out through the Samaritans and a parallel plan that he's going to work out through the Jewish people. And sadly, there is a version of theology in the Christian church today that tries to separate God's plan for the Jews from God's plan for the Gentiles and the church. Jesus says those uh, divisions are not uh, not, uh, real because God has only ever been working one plan for the human race. And the Jews are the instrument he has chosen to use to make this happen. Now by this, Jesus is not saying that we have salvation, you don't, nanny, nanny, nanny. Uh, You're excluded. No, he's just saying, don't think you're going to get it the route you're going. But salvation comes from the Jews. But you know what? It's not just for the Jews. An hour is coming, and it's now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is also seeking such people as those worshiping him. God is spirit and those worshiping him must worship in spirit and in truth. Again, Jesus says it's coming This hour where you won't be worshiping on this mount. You won't be worshiping in Jerusalem. Geography will become immaterial. The moment is here when the true worshipers are going to be worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. That's what God is after. He doesn't care what race you come from, what your background is, even your own personal moral failings. That's not what God is obsessed about. What he is looking for is people who are willing to worship him in spirit and in truth. And I think as a clarification, we have verse 24. God is spirit, and those worshiping him must worship in spirit and in truth. And most translators there don't capitalize the second spirit in that sentence. 
In other words, God is spirit, therefore the only way we can commune with him is spiritually, from our spirit to his. But I don't think that's the way John is using this, or Jesus is using this. Throughout the gospel, he's been talking about this birth from above, being born of the spirit of God. This miraculous thing that happens when God, in response to the cry of faith, gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's that well of living water that bubbles up from within into life eternal. So when he says you need to worship in spirit, I think Jesus is talking about the fact that we can only worship God the way he's seeking us to worship if we have opened up our hearts up to him and his spirit has now become a part of us. We are in spirit and in truth because Jesus is the truth because, and these are things John will flesh out later in the gospel, Jesus is the truth and the Holy Spirit is going to guide us, lead us into all truth. True worship is not about where you are. It's about where God is in relation to you. And if you have been born of the Spirit, if the Spirit of God has been gifted to you because you have cried out to the gift God sent and asked Him for living water and in response to that cry, He has given you His Spirit. Then you can worship in spirit and in truth. I have a question from verses 16 through 24. Try to imagine the kind of craving for love that would drive a woman through five marriages and finally into a relationship with a man unwilling to commit. How is Jesus the answer to these kinds of profound psychological needs? Let's keep reading, 25 and 26. The woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. Whenever he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus says to her, I am he, the one speaking to you. So the woman, she's, she's done fighting. She's done picking fights. She wants what Jesus is talking about. And she says, I, and, and the Samaritans were also awaiting the coming of the Messiah. I know Messiah is coming, the one we call the Christ. Whenever he comes, he's going to announce to us everything we need to know. And notice in saying that, she is perhaps uh, conceding the point that you worship what you do not know that Jesus just told her. You're right, Jesus. Maybe I don't know. I'm, when the Messiah comes, He'll fill in the gaps. He'll tell me what I need to know. And I can't help but think that she's maybe hoping that Jesus is this person. Jesus doesn't keep her in suspense. He says flat out, I am he. I am the one speaking to you. I find it amazing there are so many moments where people are challenging Jesus, asking him questions. Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you this or that? And Jesus doesn't give straight answers. And yet this woman, who isn't even really asking him whether he's the Messiah or not, because she is actually seeking 
He tells her what she needs to know. I am the one speaking to you. I'm the one you're looking for. There's something significant here. This is the first occurrence in the Gospel of John of this two words together, ego I me. It means I am. And uh, John has Jesus use these words over and over throughout his gospel. I am, ego I me. That exact Greek phrase is found in the Septuagint in some very important Bible passages, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the Jews had around this time. For example, in Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14, when God is sending Moses to the people of Israel, Moses says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? This is God's answer. I am who I am. I am there in the Greek Septuagint is ego I me. Or Deuteronomy 32, 39 in Moses' farewell speeches, he, ta- he quotes God saying this, See now that I, even I am he, ego I me. And there is no God beside me. Jesus will use that phrase speaking of himself 22 more times in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus, this is the first instance in which Jesus makes this overt claim to being God. I am the sacred name. I am the one speaking to you. Notice how this ties into the purpose statement we find at the end of the gospel in chapter 20. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Jesus is telling this woman that he is the great I am and he is the promised Messiah. He is son of God and Christ. And he flat out tells her without beating around the bush. Verse 27, and just then his disciples came and marveled that he was speaking with a woman. And yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? So the disciples show up, and as usual, they have no idea what's going on. They assume it's just, I don't know. Uh, They went for bread, they came back, and Jesus is talking to some woman, and that's, that's the end of it. They have no thoughts on the matter. They don't think to ask the woman, what are you looking for, woman? Uh, They don't think of asking Jesus, why are you even talking to her? Perhaps... They've already been around Jesus long enough to realize how often their stupid questions uh, make very clear their ignorance so that it say nothing. And yet, verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went off into the town and is saying to the people, come, see a man who told me all the things I have ever done. Could this one be the Christ? They came out of the town and were coming to him. 
You know, it was odd to find this woman at the well at noon. That's the hottest time of the day. Most of the women would come out early and get water for the day when it was cooler. And they would come out in numbers because there's safety in numbers. A woman doesn't want to put herself in a position of, of possible danger by going alone. But the fact that she goes at noon probably is because she is a bit of a pariah. The, the Samaritans would condemn her lifestyle just as the Jews would. They would consider her a loose woman and women would not want her around their husbands and any man who wanted to protect his own good name wouldn't want to be associated with her. That's the woman Jesus went to talk to. That's the reason he had to go through Samaria. He knew this woman was there. And the change is obvious. She has encountered Jesus. She has turned to him in faith. And all of a sudden, she's completely forgotten about why she even came there. She drops her water jar there, doesn't even take it, and runs back into the town and starts telling everyone. These people who probably uh, she wouldn't have tried to talk to because they probably wouldn't want to talk to her. And yet, all of a sudden, it doesn't matter anymore. You know, when God looks at us, really looks at us, and looks piercing into the core of who we are and our greatest failures and says, I love you. I want you. You know the weight that comes off of a human soul in that moment. She has lost that weight. And she is now free because if God loves me, then who cares what anybody else thinks about me? And she understands that this Jew has come for everybody. This Messiah has come for the world and she wants her people to know him. So she runs and tells everyone, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. And she uh, presents them with a tantalizing question she already knows the answer to. Could this one be the Christ? She wants them to go find out for themselves. She already knows. Jesus flat out told her. Could this be the one we've been waiting for? And they all ran out to see her. We see in this woman the amazing transformation that happens here. Before she encountered Jesus, the biggest thing in her life was this gaping hole inside that she was desperately trying to fill. And you know where all of her energy as a human being was focused? It was focused on filling that hole. It was focused inward. Notice the absolute reversal once she comes and encounters Jesus. Now her life is not about filling an empty hole. Now her life is overflowing so that her focus has now become the people around her. And she runs out to them and wants them to find Jesus and find in him what she has just found. 
saddest thing in human existence is when we have not come to this well of living water. We have not come to receive from Christ what our, our soul longs for in its very bones. And because there's this gaping hole inside, we, we do everything we can to gather in something to fill it. And we live these greedy, self-centered lives focused on taking and accumulating and drawing in. And there's nothing but misery because the hole is never filled. It's like the well of Jacob. Every fix wears off and you got to run out for the next fix. Jesus says, let me fill the emptiness so that you no longer have to be obsessed about it. So that all of a sudden you discover the freedom to actually live your life for those around you, not for yourself. Draw people to me. Let me do the same in their lives. Have a final question from verses 25 through 30. Jesus turned a pariah into an evangelist. How has he done the same with your life? It's almost like Jesus is stopping by today and encountering us and saying, got a minute? I'd like to talk to you about the deepest needs in your soul. I'd like to tell you that I, I came to address them, not superficially, not to put a Band-Aid on a cancer. I came to absolutely address the issue and to fill you with life that bubbles up from inside and flows on into eternity. I want to transform you from a self-centered, wounded human soul to a soul that is free to live focused outward. I would like you to be my royal messenger to a world in pain. What do you say? Let me close with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us. God Almighty, thank you that you look upon us with the love and tenderness of a father. Help us to turn to you and allow you to fill the hole within. God, turn our lives inside out so that the focus is no longer inward and painful, but outward and joyful. Free us from the tyranny of self. Jesus, thank you for coming to us. Thank you for coming for all of us. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.